0: my pleasure to um, ask Mark Stein to read his paper now. Thank you, uh, thank you, Roger. Um, al- almost, almost everyone who's, uh, who's been in a movie theater over the last half century is, is familiar with the uh, great iconic image that closes the film uh, Planet of the Apes, in which a, a loinclothed Charlton Heston uh, falls to his knees as he comes face to face with a shattered Statue of Liberty poking out of the sands and realizing uh, that the Planet of the Apes is in fact his own, or it it was. Uh, But but in fact, the shattering of uh, the Statue of Liberty uh, uh, recurs throughout uh, American popular culture as the most easily recognizable shorthand for civilizational ruin. Uh, In the film Independence Day, the Statue of Liberty gets uh, zapped by aliens. In the uh, eco-apocalyptic movie *The Day After Tomorrow*, uh, the Statue of Liberty gets flash-frozen in ice after sudden catastrophic climate change, uh, apparently brought on by a speech by Dick Cheney. I don't want to give away. <laughs> I don't want to give away the plot here, uh, but you can go back beyond that to an 1887 edition of *Life* and a story called *The Next Morning*. Uh, which was illustrated by a pen and ink drawing of a headless Statue of Liberty with the uh, smoldering rubble of the city behind her. Uh, uh, But Liberty is not a statue, uh, and that's not how it falls. And if it was, it would be easier to rouse the citizenry. Uh, The the truth of the matter is the Statue of Liberty will still be standing in the harbour, even as true Liberty uh, shrivels behind it. Uh, Just as the more and more assaults are made on real core human rights in the Western world, the more the advanced social democratic state brags about new pseudo-rights, which a benign government uh, has graciously conferred on us. If you smash liberty in an instant, as the space aliens do in Independence Day, we could all have our Charlton Heston moment and fall on our knees and bemoan it. But when it happens incrementally, uh, painlessly, uh, remorselessly, Uh, Free peoples are seduced away from freedom very easily. One of the differences between this administration uh, and its predecessor is that George W. Bush explicitly committed the United States to promoting democracy in the Middle East and elsewhere. And when he did so, there was a phrase that the president liked to use, quote, freedom is the desire of every human heart. Freedom is the desire of every human heart. Uh, It's unclear To put it at its mildest, whether that's really the case in Gaza or Waziristan, but it's absolutely certain that it's not the case in Berlin and Paris, in Stockholm and London, uh, in Toronto and New Orleans and San Francisco. The story of the Western world since 1945 is that invited to choose between freedom and government, quote, security. Uh, Large numbers of people vote to dump freedom every time. The freedom to make your own decisions about health care, about education, property rights, what you can do on your land, what you can eat, what you can say. Uh, I would have welcomed President Bush using his catchphrase, freedom is the desire of every human heart, uh, road testing it in Boston and Sacramento and Portland, Maine. And if it catches on in Maine... Uh, then applying it to Ramadi and Kandahar. <laughs> uh, as it is in the United Kingdom, in Canada, in large parts of Western Europe, we're approaching the tipping point, uh, the moment when genuinely free societies evolve partly by accident and partly consciously into something else. Uh, I think the withering of freedom in Britain, uh, which our other guests will, will address in more detail, I think, uh, in a country that was really the crucible of liberty in the modern age is a particular tragedy. Um, if I sound like I'm over-egging the pudding, let me, let me give a couple of small examples. There's a pastor, the Reverend Stephen Bossoin, who is under a lifetime speech ban imposed by the province of Alberta. He wrote a letter to his local newspaper objecting to what he called the homosexual agenda. He opposes gay marriage, uh, as did the Liberal Prime Minister and the governing party of Canada less than a decade ago. Uh, But unlike the Prime Minister, the Reverend Bosoyne didn't get with the program. Uh, So the Alberta Human Rights Tribunal convicted him, imposed a fine and ordered him never to say anything, quote, disparaging about homosexuality ever again for as long as he lives, not only in letters to the local newspaper and public speeches and radio, TV and the Internet, but also in the pulpit of his church or in private email communications. And note, by the way, the interesting legal concept underpinning that lifetime speech ban. He's banned from saying anything, quote, disparaging. Not anything illegal, uh, or even as is the fashion in this pseudo-jurisprudence, anything, quote, hateful, but nothing disparaging. Uh, He was also ordered to write a public apology recanting his previous position. Now, the enforced confession, and public recantation uh, was previously the hallmark of the justice systems of uh, such eminent jurists as Pol Pot, uh, Stalin, Saddam Hussein. Uh, In this case it was done in the name of Her Majesty the Queen in the 21st century. Uh, A colleague of mine calls the Bossoin judgment the most revolting legal decision he's ever seen in Canada. Uh, But what is more disturbing, in a way, is that, for the most part, the Albertan and Canadian political establishments are entirely cool with it. Uh, They can't see what the big deal is. They're increasingly comfortable with the notion of the state as social engineer and thus the legitimate regulator of public and even private discourse. Uh, for, For my second example, let me turn from as primal a concept as free speech, uh, to the pressing issue of bovine flatulence. Uh, that, that may seem comparatively peripheral, but of course it's basically as near as a cow gets to exercising free speech, so it is, it, it, it's not unrelated. Uh, to, comply, to comply with emissions targets, several European countries have been considering a tax on bovine flatulence. Uh, For the Americans uh, in the room, you you heard that right, not a flat tax, a flatulence tax. (laughs) Um, Ireland has been pondering a tax of 13 euros per cow, while in Denmark it may be as high as 80 euros per cow. Uh, This is to offset the looming penalties each nation faces from European Union legislation to combat, uh, quote, global warming. Uh, According to the Times in London, the Danish Tax Commission estimates that a cow will emit four tons of methane a year in burps and flatulence, compared with 2.7 tons of carbon dioxide for an average car. Uh, So if, uh, like many broken-down farms in my corner of uh, New Hampshire... You've got a herd of rusting pickups grazing in the pasture. That's fine. Uh, We'll meet our emissions standards. Uh, But cows, cows, that uh, bucolic pastoral chewing on the cud stuff, that is killing the planet. Uh, So the London Times adds this, uh, quote, agriculture, transport, and housing are not included in the EU's emissions trading scheme, which enables industrial companies to buy and sell permits to emit carbon dioxide. Instead, EU member states are obliged to cut the emissions by 10% overall by 2020. So in other words, whatever the cow does, you've got to meet these targets. Uh, While Romania and Bulgaria will be allowed to increase emissions, Ireland and Denmark are each faced with cuts of 20% in farming sector emissions. Just to understand this, a transnational body has ordered sovereign states to reduce the flatulence of their farm animals—that uh, is—that is something that even believers in big government might think is beyond the capacity of the state. Uh, and even allowing for the regulatory yoke that Europe's cowed citizenry labour under, the bureaucratic logic is hard to follow. Why is? Why do Bulgarian cows get a pass, but not the Danish and Irish one? Why why is some Bulgars Holstein allowed to increase his flatulence while the poor Jutlander's polled Hereford uh, has to put a stopper in it? Uh, Who decided this? Uh, Is there a dearth of flatulence in the Balkans but a code red alert over the North Sea? Uh, couldn't the EU introduce Al Gore-style flatulence offsets? Uh, the, the, the excessively flatulent Irish could trade some of their flatulence to the Balkans. Uh, okay now, go back, to 17, go back to 1773 and the original Tea Party. Uh, if Parliament in London had proposed taxing Boston beans to reduce emissions, You can bet the rebel colonists would have gathered at the harbor and had the world's biggest Boston Bean Party. But it's worse than that. Go back to medieval times. Uh, The gnarled old peasant is in his hovel, and one day a pantalooned emissary shows up in the dooryard and says he's come from the palace to collect His Majesty's bovine flatulence tax. (laughs) It's just three groats per cow, nothing to make a big deal about. But if we pay the flatulence tax, then the very heavens will bless us and the climate will be more favorable. Even the gnarled old peasant would would say, Ah, sorry, I don't know, the King's flatulence tax, that don't sound right. They, they, they would have had more scepticism about that in a medieval tyranny than we do in the 21st century. Someone should do a remake of Jack and the Beanstalk, which begins with Jack telling his mom the good news is he sold the high-tax cow to avoid the flatulence levy, but the bad news is it was for a handful of really powerful beans. Uh, two, two centuries ago, Tocqueville wrote, quote... There was a time in Europe in which the law, as well as the consent of the people, clothed kings with a power almost without limits. But almost never did it happen that they made use of it. Uh, And that's very true. The king was an absolute tyrant in theory. But in practice, he was in his palace hundreds of miles away. And for the most part, you got on with your life relatively undisturbed. Uh, As Tocqueville put it, although the entire government of the empire was concentrated in the hands of the emperor alone, And although he remained the arbiter of all things, the details of social life and of individual existence ordinarily escaped his control. What would happen, wondered Tocqueville, if administrative capability were to evolve to make it possible, quote, to subject all of his subjects to the details of a uniform set of regulations, unquote. That moment has now arrived. And because, as Roger said earlier, the outward indices of democracy remain in place, the citizenry simply shrug and say, uh, a flatulence tax? Sure, why not? How many absolute tyrants, absolute monarchs of old, uh, how, how many of them did it ever occur to them to attempt to tax the very air?" Uh, back in the 90s, Bill Clinton famously said, the era of big government is over. And what we have instead is the era of lots and lots of itsy-bitsy, teensy-weensy bits of small government that cumulatively add up to something bigger than the biggest government uh, anybody ever dreamt of ever. In a way, because all the big ideas failed in the last century, culminating in uh, 1989 in Eastern Europe with the comprehensive failure of the biggest idea of all, uh, the statists uh, retreated very effectively to all the small ideas, to a web of micro-tyrannies that in their overbearing pettiness Uh, ensnare you at every turn. And what they discovered is that free peoples will surrender freedom incrementally, uh, very easily. Uh, How did this happen? Uh, When Sir William Beveridge laid out his blueprint for the British welfare state in uh, in 1943, his goal was the, quote, abolition of want. Uh, It seems never to have occurred to him to wonder that if you succeeded in abolishing want, what sort of citizenry you'd be left with. Uh, The Sun newspaper in Britain at one point used to run something called a Shopper Sponger Hotline, uh, fingering the likes of Susan Moore of Berrythorpe, North Yorkshire, a so-called welfare super-sponger who, quote, has not done a day's work since dropping out of college in 1988. Uh, For two decades she's received the weekly, quote, job seekers allowance. Even though she doesn't seek a job, and never has. She was offered one by a supermarket but it was five miles away so she wasn't interested. Uh, Rydale Job Center put her on a New Deal course and to make sure she attended they sent a taxi for her every morning. Uh, but one day the cab didn't show up so Susan gave up the course. Maybe they should have sent her a stretch limo. Uh, she lives with her divorced mum who's also on Job Seekers Allowance although her mum hasn't sought a job since giving birth to Susan in 1969. And as I was reading this, my eye then fell on the amount that, quote, super-scrounger Susan had managed to scrounge. It was £2,000 per annum, £40 a week. She and her mum get another £45 housing benefit to live in what looks like quite an attractive home, and she's trying to claim income support on medical grounds because she suffers from, quote, monthly painful spells. But if the best... (laughs) If the best... You know, if, if the best a super sponger can do is an average 40 pounds a week, it should remind us of a basic truth that uh, Daniel touched on last night that the greatest crime of welfare isn't that it's a waste of money, but that it's a waste of people. Uh, 40, 40 quid wasn't enough for a welfare queen to queen around on, but it was just enough to enable her to avoid making anything of her life enough to let her sit around all week, quote, listening to CDs and watching videos. It's hard to think of anything capitalism read in tooth and claw could have done to Susan Moore that would have left her worse off and with a more impoverished life than the great sapping nullity uh, in which Her Majesty's government has maintained her for entire adulthood. Uh, when welfareism, when the abolition of want becomes the organizing principle of society, Uh, The danger is, is that that kind of uh, inertia descends on the entire state. Uh, In Britain, five million people, a tenth of the adult population, haven't done a day's work since the new Labour government took office in 1997. Uh, And just as the abolition of want has abolished the stigma of unemployment, of dysfunctional families, and much else, so at the other end, it's abolished respect for self-reliance and self-improvement. Uh, Citizens of every developed nation, except the United States, now take it for granted that the state is responsible for their health. Uh, Grown men and women say, I want to be able to choose from hundreds of cereals at the supermarket, thousands of movies from Netflix, millions of pornography sites on the Internet, but when it comes to peripheral things like my body, I want the government to choose for me. Uh, A nation that demands the government take care of all the grown-up stuff Uh, is a nation turning into the world's uh, wrinkliest adolescent, literally when you look at the demographic profiles of uh, of Europe. Uh, It's free only to choose its record uh, collection, like Susan Moore, uh, quote, being paid by the government to sit around listening to CDs and watching videos all day. Uh, The state has gradually annexed all the responsibilities of adulthood to the point where it's effectively severed its citizens, as Tocqueville foresaw, from the need to function as grown-ups. Uh, what LBJ's Great Society did to the black family in America and what British welfare did to the family more broadly is a direct and foreseeable consequence of those policies. Healthcare is a game changer and this is why Americans uh, should, not, should not surrender this line because it changes everything and for all time. It's not about health. It's about a view of the relationship between the citizen and the state that is profoundly incompatible uh, with individual liberty. A recent report in Le Journal de Montréal revealed that severely incontinent Quebecers, that's to say they go to the bathroom 12 times a night, wait up to three years for a simple half-hour procedure that could give them a decent night's sleep. Now, that's not about health. That's about the acceptance of the proposition that a government bureaucrat has sovereignty over your bladder that you'll be getting up 12 times a night, seven nights a week, 52 weeks a year for three years, simply because the state has so decreed. Uh, A Quebecer who dissents from the bureaucrat's ruling uh, is free to go to the United States and pay however many dollars to have that incontinence procedure done in uh, Fletcher Allen Hospital in Vermont or Dartmouth-Hitchcock in New Hampshire. Uh, driving flat out with his legs crossed all the way. But it's illegal. it's illegal for him to have the procedure done in his own country until the bureaucrat rules that he can. Uh, in British Columbia, they've just announced a 15% cut in, quote, elective surgery. Uh, that means you can elect to have the surgery, but they won't elect to give it to you. Uh, now, we're, we're often told that America spends more per capita on health care than other Western nations. Uh, but in fact, quote, America doesn't spend anything on health care. Americans spend on health care. Millions of Americans making millions of individual decisions. Uh, By contrast, in Canada, health care is a line item in the government budget. And if you decide you'd like to increase that budget by a couple of hundred extra bucks and get an MRI or a CAT scan uh, on your schedule rather than the bureaucrats, tough. You can't. It's illegal unless you drive south and have it done in a foreign country. Uh, And that's for as long as America retains its system. Once uh, we've embraced government health care, those incontinent Quebecers howling in agony with their legs crossed for the 130 miles to the next interstate rest area will be having to drive all the way to Costa Rica. It's not about the state of your health. It's about the health of the state. Uh, What does the acceptance of the idea of, of the state's annexation, of the individual's responsibility for his own health, uh, the nationalization of your body, in effect, uh, say about the broader society. Uh, when you agree to let the state provide you with, quote, free health care, you acknowledge implicitly that the state has an interest in the claims you make upon that free health care. So health licenses the government to regulate the choices you make about your life. Uh, and if you don't, uh, you may not get the free health care. After all, uh, under Britain's National Health Service, smokers in Manchester Uh, get denied uh, treatment for heart disease and the obese in Suffolk have been refused hip and knee replacements. Uh, The the British Health Secretary said that it's appropriate to decline treatment on the basis of lifestyle choices. Uh, Now a a smoker or one of the obese uh, members of society may look at their gay neighbor having a wild time and having unprotected sex with multiple partners and wonder why his lifestyle choices aren't also penalized by by the government. But that's the point. Tyranny is always whimsical. Uh, The bigger the government gets, the more arbitrary uh, the decisions and regulations it imposes on you. Any state that guarantees all your basic needs, your quote, freedom from want, uh, will become increasingly comfortable Uh, with regulating uh, your behavior. And free peoples uh, who only two generations ago were willing to give their lives for liberty can be persuaded very quickly to relinquish their liberties uh, for a quiet life. Uh, If you then add another great progressive cause, the environment, uh, you've basically got the big government double. You have a pretext then for regulating everything uh, that you do with your property. Uh, because every footstep you take is in, broadly speaking, the environment. Uh, So between healthcare and and the environment, you've handed the government a ratchet for the incremental seizure of your property rights and your most basic freedoms. Uh, If they can't get you on grounds of your personal health, they'll do it on grounds of planetary health. Um, Not so long ago in Britain... It was proposed that each citizen should have a government-approved travel allowance. If you, if you take one flight a year, you'd pay just the standard amount of tax on the journey, but if you travel more frequently, if you take a second or third flight, you'll be subject to additional levies, all in the interest of saving the planet uh, for Al Gore's polar bear documentaries. And now isn't this the very definition of totalitarianism light? The Soviets restricted the movement of people through the bureaucratic apparatus of exit visas. The British in this case were proposing to do it through the bureaucratic apparatus of exit taxes. Uh, that's, uh, that's just a mere difference uh, of degree, uh, nothing else. Once upon a time we would have recognized uh, that an assault on freedom of movement was profoundly totalitarian. If you do it in the name of the environment, everything, everyone thinks it's a kind and progressive idea. Uh, it wouldn't be possible, I don't think, to assault so many fundamental freedoms if we weren't getting something back in return that gives us the illusion of increased liberty. Uh, and I, I think there's no doubt about what this, what this is. I noticed a few weeks ago that what I quaintly thought of as the Toronto Gay Pride Parade uh, was officially billed this year as a parade to celebrate the LGBTIQQ2S communities. Uh, LGBTTIQQ2S. Oh, anyone know what that stands for? Come on, it's a, it's an easy acronym. Uh, you know, you don't know, no, no, no guesses. Okay, I, I win the Lincoln Town car. It's uh, it's LGBTTIQQ2S. Is lesbian, gay, bisexual, transsexual, transgendered, intersexual, queer, questioning, and two spirited.
1: <laughs>
0: no, don't laugh. Two two spirited doesn't mean like you know. Uh, Two spirited, as in *Anne of Green Gables*. It's uh, it's some Native American thing. Um, <laughs> Any any day now, and don't tr- b- don't bother trying to memorise the L G B T T I Q Q two S, because uh, by next year's parade they'll have added uh, intergendered and transpirited, and by the time the mayor has stumbled through the acronym in his official proclamation, the parade will be over. Um, I've no idea why any anyone any group would pick an acronym like L G B T T I Q Q two. It's it's like paying for a vanity license plate, and then the D M V sends you the one they would have issued anyway. It doesn't make any sense. Um, but but it, it, it seems an appropriate resting place uh, for radical theories of personal autonomy. Uh, a few years ago, our friend uh, Kenneth Minogue uh, wrote that ours is the age of the new Epicureans, in which freedom to choose trumps all. Uh, so a uh, if, uh, if a man wakes up uh, this morning and decides he'd rather be a woman, uh, he can go and, and do that, and uh, the state will pay uh, for him to define himself according to his own uh, uh, identity. Uh, The developed world's, I think, massive expansion of personal sexual liberty has provided a kind of useful cover uh, for the shrinking of almost every other kind. Free speech, property rights, economic liberty, the right to self-defense are under continuous assault by big government. But who cares uh, when big government lets you decide uh, every, uh, basically define yourself uh, in terms of your sexual identity uh, a- a- in an ever-increasing, bewildering number of, uh, of subcategories. And every North Ameri- city in North America will host a grand parade to celebrate your right to do so. Uh, I like that recently elected mayor in England who wanted to stop funding for the gay pride parade on the grounds that if they're that proud of it why can't they pay for it. Um, He's actually making a rather profound point that even our so-called celebration of sexual individuality now depends on the validation of the state. Um, it's an oddly reductive notion of individual liberty. The more noisily we insist on our individualism, the more the overall societal aesthetic is drearily homoge- homogenized, like uh, closing time in a karaoke bar with the last sad drunks bellowing off the teleprompter, I did it my way. That is, that is what individualism in the, in, the, in the big government state boils down to. You combine healthcare, environmentalism, environmentalism, identity group politics... And you have a more detailed micromanagement of the citizen uh, than ever ever contemplated. And finally, as Andy discussed earlier, we have the complicating factor of Islam. Uh, Modern social democratic, democratic governments preside over multicultural societies which have less and less glue holding them together. And they're very at ease with the idea of the state as the mediator between, as the only legitimate mediator between different interest groups. Most of these governments, as David said, haven't a clue what to do about their turbulent, surging Muslim populations. But they still have unbounded faith in their own powers. And so it seems entirely natural to manage the problem by regulating freedom in the so-called interests of social harmony. And as we saw with the French headscarf ban and the accompanying prescription of yamulkas and crucifixes, The state is incapable of even modest obstacles to Islam's advance uh, without blurring it uh, within more universal restrictions. So I I return finally to the the central point. What kind of citizenry do you wind up with in such a world? Uh, In 2004, Wired magazine ran an interesting feature about a a fellow called Hans Monderman, a highway engineer in the Netherlands for the previous three decades. Um, A year or two earlier, he'd had an epiphany, as uh, Wired magazine put it, build roads that seem dangerous and they'll be safer. Uh, In other words, all the junk on the streets, the signs for everything every five yards, uh, yellow lines, pedestrian crossings, stoplights, crash barriers, bike lanes, uh, by giving the illusion of security actually makes driving more dangerous. Uh, the town of Christianfeld in Denmark embraced uh, the Mondeman philosophy, removed all the traffic signs and signals from its most dangerous intersection and thereby cut the number of serious accidents down to zero. Uh, these days when you tootle towards that particular junction there's no instructions from the Department of Transportation to tell you what to do. You have to figure it out for yourself so you approach it cautiously and with an eye on what the other fellows in the vicinity are up to. Mr. Mondemann's thesis uh, that by, is that by creating the illusion of security you relieve the citizen of the need to make his own judgments. We've done that not just at traffic intersections, not just on, but, but in a broader sense. Uh, a broader sense that you can understand when you walk down any, almost any street in London now and you are fo- photographed and filmed every step of the way by the CCTV cameras that accompany uh, your every movement in, in the United G- Kingdom. Uh, Charles Murray gave a speech in Washington on uh, on quote the European model. That's not Carla Bruna, by the way. Charles is a very <laughs> serious and sober thinker, so he he issued <laughs> he issued such a hoary old jest. Um, none, nonetheless, nonetheless, it was a, a fascinating address, beginning beginning with his diagnosis of the European model's principal defect, uh, which Ch- Charles put this way: it drains too much of the life from life. Uh, and uh, Charles said that statement applies as much to the lives of janitors, even more to the lives of janitors, as it does to the lives of CEOs. Uh, when government policy is intended to take some of the trouble out of things, uh, the trouble out of getting sick, uh, having a kid, holding down a job, taking care of elderly parents, when government takes too much of the trouble out of things, it makes Im- it impossible to leave a satisfying life, uh, because trouble Responsibility, choices, consequences, all the messy things that go with liberty is intimately tied to human dignity. Uh, And thus the human dignity in working hard, raising a family, and withstanding the vicissitudes of life uh, is devalued, and society becomes just a matter of passing the time. Uh, In real life, there are choices and consequences. But if the government makes all the choices and absolves you of any of the consequences, what's left of life in any meaningful sense? Uh, William Beveridge's goal for the modern British welfare state, the abolition of want, was supposed to be accomplished by, quote, cooperation between the state and the individual. Uh, In attempting to insulate the citizenry from the vicissitudes of fate, Sir William succeeded beyond his wildest dreams. Want has been all but abolished. So today, fewer and fewer Britons and Europeans want to work, want to marry, want to raise children, want to lead a life of any purpose or dignity. And cooperation, as he put it, between the state and the individual has resulted in a huge expansion of the former and the remorseless shriveling of the latter. As I said at the beginning, we're slipping past the point of no return. Uh, These days, I often think about my my state's motto, uh, live free or die. It's on the license plates in New Hampshire. And when I first heard it, it seemed like a battle cry to me. But in fact, it's actually something more prosaic, a bold statement of a simple reality. You can live as free men, but if you choose not to, as we are beginning to see in America, Canada, Britain, and Europe to differing degrees, then your society will surely die. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Mark, for that uh, cheerful message. (laughs) Uh, first, I'd like to ask if anyone uh, on the panel here would like to offer a comment, proffer a question.
3: Well, I'd,
4: could I? Absolutely.
3: Uh, I mean, I agreed with just about everything Mark said, but, but we are in a strange kind of situation where it, there's an explanation for the reason that Atlas Shrugged has uh, been selling like hotcakes uh, this year. It always sells like hotcakes, but its, its sales have gone way up. And that is we are living in a time which is, which is rather similar to it, where we're losing freedom in exactly the way that Mark described, and that technology is increasing freedom in all sorts of other ways. Uh, my life as a researcher writer has been transformed by, by technology. Uh, what I'm doing now on my computer down in my room, a few floors below here, are things that I could not have conceivably done uh, even 15 years ago, let alone when I was writing a book like Losing Ground. Uh, centralized institutions of all kinds are much less important to us now. We're much less dependent on them now than we were before. It can be something as simple as being less dependent on the post office because of the Internet, and because of FedEx and, and, and so forth. Uh, but it can also be more profound kinds of independence where where the power that we have over knowledge, the inability of gatekeepers to impede the, the, the flow of interaction, that, all of that's gotten much, much greater. Uh, I'm not saying this counterbalances what Mark was saying. I'm saying it's another dynamic that's going on. And it also is something that potentially can be made obvious to people that in one uh, segment of life, namely private life technology, things are getting better and better. And what the government does gets worse and worse. Roger,
0: and, Roger could, could, hmm? could, I just, could I just respond uh, yep. to that? Well, you, you finished, Charles. So we you were going to Well, that. yeah,
3: because now I'm going to. Here's here's yeah. the, the. I want to reinforce the gloom at this point. Um, I'm currently wor- working on a book which takes a whole variety of social trends and disaggregates them by socioeconomic class, and just to make it so that we can't get confused about what's going on, I limit the analysis to non-Hispanic whites. And what's going on is really very scary. Uh, Earlier, uh, Herb was saying the family is declining, and he gave the numbers on illegitimacy. And he pointed out that about 25% of all non-Latino white births now are to single women. But that is not true across white socioeconomic classes. Among white... uh, The white upper class, let's just not mince words, uh, births to single women are in single digits. They're at at, uh, 1950s levels. Among the white lower class, they are now about 60%, which is basically about the same as the black rate. Marriage, here's something, because we all know people are divorced, but I will tell you statistically, among the white upper class, upper middle class. The percentage of children who experience a divorce by the time their parents are 40 is in single digits. Among the white lower classes, working classes, it's a, it's a majority of kids. And I could just go through one after another. Then let me add on one other aspect. The people in this room, all of the people in this room, not just those of you who are really rich, um, have lots of workarounds whereby the government can do all sorts of stuff and we can work around it. Uh, Costa Rica, hell, we can get to Bangkok if we need medical treatment, you know, uh, if we want too badly enough. And there are all sorts of other ways in which a lot of the government uh, bureaucrac- bureaucracies—you know this yourselves, people in the audience who deal with other business people—if you're a big corporation, a lot of that works to your competitive advantage. It's the little guy who can't afford to do all of the coping with the government idiotic stuff, but the but a large corporation can, and indeed welcomes regulation of certain kinds. So in a variety of ways we have uh, a, a, a top tier of American society now which does not have the same incentives to fight this stuff that Mark was talking about because frankly we're all right Jack. And this poses a very different kind of question because it has formerly been the upper middle class in the United States that has that, that has been the backbone of uh, keeping America what it was. and. They are becoming de-energized. Mark. Yeah,
0: I, I, I just wanted to, I agree with that that last part. I just wanted to go back to uh, Ch- Charles's uh, uh, untypical uh, Pollyanna-ish bit, as he said in the last session before that, uh, the, the faith in new technology. Uh, when I uh, first moved to New Hampshire, the, the, mm-hmm. I loved my crazy neighbors who wanted to live off the grid, who were convinced uh, they didn't have any telephone. They they didn't have a, a, any electricity. They hacked a trail deep into the woods, uh, and they put up a cabin. And they didn't they didn't have any uh, utilities. They didn't want to have a TV because they their view was that if you had a TV, it meant the government could watch you. It's a kind of two way thing. Um, and uh, I was talk I love these guys. I was talking to one of them. Uh, a few months ago, and he told me he'd given up on that, and he was going to get electric poles strung out to his house, and he was going to get a telephone for the f- first time in his life. And I said, well, what happened to the whole off-the-grid thing? You wanted to live free from uh, government uh, control uh, beaming uh, beaming its uh, death rays through the TV set into your head every night. Uh, and he said, oh, I, yeah, I know. I, I, I lived like that for years. He said, and then uh, my daughter went to school, and I went to the library with her one day, and she showed me this thing they've got called called GPS. Uh, on the inter- on 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 this thing called Google where where you can just see a, an aerial shot of my cabin in the woods uh, from anywhere in the world he said so when the government the go- I, he said I, he's got like more he's got more firearms in his basement than the average EU army these days uh, and he said I've been wasting my time I thought they were going to be coming over the horizon they're just gonna look at the, this satellite picture uh, vaporize me from the skies and it'll be put down to a mysterious propane tank explosion. (laughs) Uh, And so I think the technology is just as likely, in that sense, the technology favours control. Um, If you look at almost any permit now, you don't fill in the form, you don't fill in question seven correctly. Uh, There's just, someone makes a blip on a computer somewhere, and your permit isn't renewed. Uh, And that's, uh, if you imagine the, I mentioned the Boston Tea Party, you imagine King George III, if he could have watched that Live on satellite with the GPS things, and said uh, and said to the uh, said to one of his uh, fellows with the powdered wigs, uh, get me the names of all those guys, and we'll freeze their bank accounts. This is the kind of thing Andy used to do when he was uh, in the federal <laughs> prosecution business. We'll, uh, certainly Andy's old boss did. We'll freeze their we'll we'll freeze their bank accounts in nothing flat, and this whole Boston Tea Party thing will go nowhere. It's much easier. Uh, it's much easier to do that now. So I think technology, in one sense, opens up the world, but in in others, it it actually advances the micro tyranny.
3: The, the good news here, and I'll be real quick. The good news here is that the really good computer hackers don't want to work for the government. Mm-hmm. Uh, our our <laughs> computer hackers uh, are better than theirs. <laughs> Her.
5: Well, there are there are two points
3: that I wanted to make. The uh, the
5: first is that. The challenges uh, Charles has pointed out to the control of government can be found in the voice of talk radio in the United States. And it's not at all coincidental that one of the proposals emerging from the Obama administration is control over talk radio through the fairness doctrine. Uh, that is not coincidental. Uh, it is also true that another proposal is the control of the internet during emergencies. Obviously, it hasn't passed, but it's been discussed. So there is a great fear that, in fact, The government may play a very active role in controlling what might be the manifestations of individual individual enterprise through government activity. I'd like to come back to the first point that Mark raised, which is very interesting to me, when he talked about Planet of the Apes, and that is the role that popular culture very often plays in this freedom security equation. Because if you look at Hollywood films from the 1940s to the present, by and large, there is one essential theme I call the monomyth. And the monomyth is very much based on the idea that individuals exercising their freedom cannot solve a problem and that you have to give over this problem to either Batman or to Shane or to someone in Jaws, but by and large, the, the exercise of individual freedom will not work. And this has become a very, very prominent theme in Hollywood. So that when you have individuals that are working through some sort of legislative body exercising their personal freedom, they are incapable of dealing with a menace, whether it's the shark or whether it's the joker or whether it is some phenomenon that you have to deal with so that in a curious way, Hollywood has played into the theme that Mark has made reference to, and when you think about the freedom security equation, invariably Americans do opt for security over freedom in large part because they've been taught to do so Thank you very much.
1: And okay. Okay, could I just um, Again, um, agree with um, Charles Charles Murray's point that you know we shouldn't get too alarmist about um, what's going on. And uh, you know, um, mass democracies have got lots of check, checks and balances. Um, and um, you know, you can talk about travel allowances, but I remember I lived in a country where um, there were exchange controls for most of my, not quite all my life, but but large part of my life. Went, so we had much more freedom. Um, and you know we always talk about worries about violence and Islamic terrorists. Well, we actually had street violence in parts north of England in the early' 1980s with a miners' strike, and that, that were defeated. so lots, lots of checks and balances and, um, the, and the larger check checks and balances that what appears to be the case is that trying to get down to formula that um, the size of the government sector really can't go much above 60% of GDP. That appears to be, Sweden got there and then retrenched. Um, and um, so there is that constraint, and um, so the, the societies won't break down. They'll just probably just, just carry on between sort of, you look at all these societies, they've basically got the, the, the size of the state is between 35% and 60%. All of the OECD societies, but just now, for many decades, have been like that. Um, so I don't, having said all that, um, and so they're in many ways very stable. They just carry on like this, and they retrench when they get to 60, and when they get down to 35, 40, they expand the state and so on. The Canada, by the way, has been through this in the last 25 years in a rather dramatic way. Um, the, um, where I think the point that actually unites you is this: um, the way you agree is that the welfare state is having the effect of increasing the inequality, ultimately, of human capital. That actually, it's making um, a group of people at the bottom less able to deal with life challenges, and you know, in some crude sense, probably less intelligent, but you know, I could discuss that, of course, um, making it increases inequality in capital, and then actually increases inequality um, and this is something that is very disturbing about the kind of society that we live in. You know, everybody's got the vote and so on. These, these are historically very unusual societies, by the way. Um, and um, so, um, you know, that I think is just very genuinely a big problem, that actually there is this, this uh, what appears to be, we now had sort of mass democracies in, in the West for about 80 to 100 years, had welfare states for something like, say, 50, 50 to 75 years. And, and that's enough generation to see this going on, and it's very disturbing.
6: Michael. Yeah, uh, a, few, a few points. Uh, first, uh, the, I think on, on the encroachment of the states, it's one of the things where the re- we can be grateful for the recession, uh, uh, putting, putting limits on the, on the growth of the states. In the UK, most European countries have got a system of identity cards, where uh, compulsory identity cards that all... Uh, citizens need to carry an identity card with them. In the UK, there have been proposals to introduce identity cards, which is, it, it is supported by the current Labour government, which is still committed to introducing ID cards. The Tories oppose them. It's not really a party political point, because when the Tories were in power, they were quite key. Michael Howard, who was the last Conservative Home Secretary, was a great advocate of identity cards. But I mean, that that sort of increase in, in state power now looks very unlikely because for cost reasons. that The 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 costing on of introducing identity cards has been put at between two two and four billion, and it seems uh, all, all parties now need to look at spending costs. And I mean, I think that will be pretty much uh, almost certainly they won't be introduced in the short term. If the so and other encroachments such as that, such as the increase in CCTV cameras, etc., might be somewhat lessened just for budgetary constraints. So, in, in that particular instance, I think the, re- the recession will probably limit. The increase of state power. And a couple of other points. The mark mentioned this idea of differential taxation on flights uh, being being proposed in the UK. That you should pay higher rates of tax. They're the, they're the standard tax on on a flight, and that that there should be you should pay higher and higher rates depending on how many times you fly every year. It's interesting where that proposal actually came from. It wasn't some sort of radical green group. It was the Conservative Party looking, the Conservative Party set up various commissions to look at policy uh, on the environment, et cetera, to sort of show that they rejuvenated themselves. And one of the proposals this, env- this Environment Commission came up with was this idea of uh, increased, increased levels of taxation uh, on, on flights. I think that, that proposal has now been shelved, but it was one of their sort of... One of their sort of big ideas. Another one, for example, was that supermarkets should be banned from providing free parking. Supermarkets <laughs> in, in the UK provide parking outside their outside their shops, and there was a proposal to ban that to sort of and force them to charge for parking. But I think those sort of crazier policies by the Tories have really have really been shelved. It was all part of the. I thought the Conservative Party adopted a narrative in the UK that they didn't win elections because they were seen as nasty and unpleasant. Uh, as the nasty party. So they were thinking, how can we prove we're caring? How can we prove we're concerned, etc.? So they set up these various, various <coughs> Compassionate, I'll that word. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah, the other point, the other point just, uh, other point just uh, for fairness really, the examples Mark gave about healthcare in in Canada, those arguments don't really apply to uh, the National Health Service in the UK, since it's not since the severely incontinent person, it's not illegal for them <coughs> to have the operation in the UK privately. They're the thriving private healthcare sector. It just means that you have to pay for, pay for it. You have to, to pay for the healthcare twice: uh, once through taxation and once directly. Uh, but there's no <coughs> restrictions on having any operations and whenever you, whenever you want, there's no legal restriction on, on what operations you, you deal with, you just have to pay for them in addition to your taxation. Anyway, those are the points.
7: David? I, I once heard that great man, Eli Kiduri, explain how tyranny in the Muslim world depended on carbon paper. Mm-hmm. Because you could have six copies of the Caliph's orders on the typewriter and what a difference this made it centralized power. And it strikes me that that's really what the computer now is taking the place of carbon paper. And let me read you a little piece that I cut out from the Daily Telegraph this week. The European Union is spending millions of pounds on developing technologies designed to scour the internet and CCTV images for abnormal behavior. A five-year research Program called Project INDECT, D-E-C-T at the end, aims to develop computer programs that process information from websites, discussion forums, file servers, peer-to-peer networks, and even individual computers. According to Project INDECT's website, its objectives include the automatic detection of threats and abnormal behavior or violence. Project INDECT, which received... £10 million pounds in funding from the EU involves the police service and computer scientists at York University, in addition to colleagues in nine other European countries. The index research comes as the EU is pressing ahead with an expansion of its role to fighting crime, terrorism and managing migration. They've always got a good reason, haven't they, for being tyrants? <laughs> They've always, they, always, they always find something to, to, to try to bamboozle us. Um, but it seems to me that a a, a tyrannical state is being built here the like of which the world has never seen before and they will run riot over us and do whatever they feel like doing and we are virtually defenseless against these things when mr blair won the election in 1997 i remember being at a party given by conrad black he wouldn't alas give such a party now poor man and There were television cameras and all the rest of it, because they were gloating. They knew that the conservatives were going to get thrashed. And I remember Peter Mandelson, Mr. Blair's chief sidekick, coming on television and saying, the age of representative democracy is over. And I'm afraid that that is what is happening, that they, with the computer as its useful tool, they are managing to create a society in which the classic democratic virtue... Of throw the bastards out is no longer applicable. Um, we have uh, a- Andy and
2: Jim Pearson, but Tim wanted to make a uh, inter- uh, inter- Fair directive. enough.
1: On the other hand, that's how MI6 identifies it. like Islamic terrorism. It's identifying when there's blips and fluctuations in, in, all, of, in all of the, the, the electronic traffic. Let's they, they make no secret about it. That's how, that's, that's how in fact, in America, there's been no major terrorist outbreak, anything like since 9-11. it may be hugely expensive, but actually, you know, homeland security's been working. And in the UK, similarly, you know, since, since uh, what it, July, what was a few years ago, again, on the whole, they've identified things before they happened. It's exactly by these methods of surveillance.
8: We're stopping to do that. We're not doing that anymore, are we? We're actually cutting back on a lot of the surveillance. Uh, here. I, I just want to make a, a brief observation. Um, we were in Acadia uh, hiking over the summer, and it, it was interesting to me. Maybe this has been this way for a number of years, and I just missed it. But it was—I it, thought—it was profound this year. There were signs all over the place, and the park <laughs> rangers actually uh, gave a little class to the to the kids, uh, which explained that it was a violation of federal law if you fed the animals. Um, and the park rangers very. Uh, <clears throat> extensively uh, gave l- lectures ostensibly to the kids but I think to everybody who was assembled to explain to them that uh, if you feed them they become dependent and they won't be able to survive um, <laughs> I, for what it's worth I just put it out there is, is, is it a, a kernel of a hopeful sign that the same government that could come to that conclusion I don't know but <laughs> Jim
9: Thank you. I very much appreciate Mark's talk. It was wonderful. Uh, someone once said that American life is a race between decadence and dynamism. Uh, and I think uh, Charles has some faith that dynamism is going to win. And I think Mark thinks that decadence is going to win, but, uh, it's too early to, to predict how all that will work out. But it seems to me that the road to serfdom to the extent that we're on it has come from an unlikely, has followed an unlikely path, and perhaps one not predicted by Hayek. All of my neighbors up in Westchester County, which is a very prosperous area, it's probably true of everyone who lives in Manhattan, and anyone who lives in a very prosperous suburb, uh, all their friends and neighbors uh, voted enthusiastically for Barack Obama. Uh, that's true of the most uh, prosperous and elite colleges, that's true of my son's college and the professors there, and it's true all over the country. The resistance to the welfare state seems to come from a kind of a lower middle class, uh, somewhat less elite and less educated audience, maybe much more religious. Uh, but all the sectors in American life that seem to be linked up to the global economy somehow, urban, uh, coastal, uh, highly educated elite institutions—they seem to be accepting, indeed welcoming this process that Mark has described. I don't have an explanation as to why that's so. Uh, Charles has pointed out rightly that they are de-energized uh, in in opposing the advancement of uh, the welfare state. I think Hayek thought that these sectors would oppose it, uh, and and it's kind of worked via a different route. I don't know why that's the case, but it it seems to be a factor that has given momentum to this this process.
2: Daniel.
10: I wanted to um, recall what happened 20 years ago and share my experience of that with you, because I think it's relevant to what Mark and Charles and all of us have been talking about. And I want to begin by saying, we all know the story of the emperor who had no clothes. Okay, And I think there does come a point when the emperor, the imperial state, if you like, is suddenly revealed to have no clothes. On the night of November the 9th, 1989, I was in Berlin, and there was a press conference given by the East German Communist Party, uh, which was having its uh, Central Committee meeting, and the party boss uh, of Berlin, who was their spokesman, Gunter Schabowski, uh, was speaking. It was very boring. We had a lot of very dreary announcements um, and sort of sloganizing and so on. But after an hour or two of this, he suddenly made one announcement which made us all sit up. Uh, it was in response to an Italian journalist who, who asked him about the travel regulations. And Shabowski said, well, actually, yes. Uh, he produced a piece of paper and said, we, we're going to change the travel regulations, actually. Um, we're going to allow people uh, to travel. He didn't put it as simply as this. It was, it was in, dressed up in you know, bureaucratic jargon. Uh, we're going to allow them to travel to the West uh, with visas. Um, and... Uh, you know, that will, that will now be allowed. Um, and somebody, there was, you know, a flurry of, of, uh, of questions, um, and somebody said, so when does this uh, new regulation come into force? And uh, he said, well, um, I, you ought to know that already. I'm sure you've already been issued with, uh, with this document, but, um, uh, which we hadn't, of course. And he, he, he then said, well, actually, it appears um, immediately, Um, And um, at that point, I got the microphone. Up to this point, no one had mentioned the Berlin Wall. And I'd been waiting hours to ask a question, and suddenly I'd got the microphone, and so I simply blurted out, so what will happen to the Berlin Wall now? And there was a total silence in the room. Schabowski didn't know what to say it hadn't occurred to these mighty bureaucrats that if you allowed people to go through the wall, there was no point in having a wall. There was no, no need to have Europe divided and the world divided, um, and in particular Berlin divided in this way. And so he desperately tried to kind of blurt out some, some sort of busking answer. Um, now... The whole of the German people and particularly the East German people were watching this. It was on TV it was live and they could see that Schabowski had nothing to say uh, that there was no answer there is no answer you know there could be no answer to that question and uh, so he immediately ended the press conference at that point he said, "No more questions um, and so we weren't able to kind of follow it up and work out what was really going on. People were left to their own devices. They had to make a decision, okay, there and then. Are we gonna find out what the answer to that question is? So they did, they went down to the checkpoints and they demanded to be allowed through. And the poor guards had a choice of either killing them or letting them through, there was no other way. Uh, They'd been given no instructions at all. And in fact, the entire East German bureau, uh, Leadership went to bed. They they had an early night. They went off to their heavily protected compound uh, and went to sleep. They had no idea that their entire world was collapsing around them. And we all know what happened, of course. You know, we. I mean, it was the most memorable night uh, that most of us have ever lived through. And the point I'm trying to make is that it can happen. Nobody predicted this was going to happen, except one man, perhaps, and that was Ronald Reagan because two years before he had actually gone to the wall and called on Mr. Gorbachev to open it against the advice of the State Department, uh, which tried desperately to excise that passage from his speech right up to the moment when he gave the speech. Uh, but, but in a sense, that was what began that process. Um, so I, I mention this only, that you know, this, this much less kind of visible tyranny that we're living under now May also reach the point when nobody believes in it anymore when uh, when the Emperor has no more clothes Thank i don 't you. know how it will happen, none of us does, but i i i 'm confident that one day it will happen
2: well I, I hope so daniel uh, just on to follow up on that, I wanted to mention that uh, the new criterion actually is going to be having a special section in November on the fall of the Berlin Wall, and uh, attendant uh, realities in in November to commemorate the 20th anniversary um but I want to turn things over to the audience in a
5: moment but Herb uh... uh, has a last uh... comment I I just wanted to make reference to the security freedom equation uh... in an, an age when we have to deal with terrorism when Mohammed Atta attempted to enter an aircraft he was given permission to do so largely because he had an illicit license which trumped the fact that he was on a no-fly list. Immediately afterward, the Congress passed a secure license legislation, saying that every state in the United States had to come up with secure licenses. That has been modified subsequently because one state said they couldn't afford it. But most significantly, it has actually been modified because of the lobby of beer companies, which want people with their legal licenses to be able to buy beer late at night, and by the pornography industry that would very much like to see teenagers be able to secure pornographic films. So it becomes a very interesting question. It is also the role of Cato to suggest, and uh, here you have the union of left and right to say that this is an infringement on privacy. And so here what you had on the one hand was a desire to increase the degree of security in the United States by having secure licenses, now modified by a variety of interests in the United States. I'm merely suggesting that the the security freedom equation becomes very complicated when you talk about very specific illustrations.
2: Uh, thank you, Herbert. I, I also want to uh, thank Mark for his superb paper and uh, just to mention that I, I will never look at a cow quite the same way <laughs> again. Uh, uh, Ken, wait for please for Callie. Uh, Ken Gilman, um,
4: I was in Britain recently and a good friend uh, was explaining to me how he's going to lose his driver's license in October because. He keeps getting these automatic speeding tickets. Uh, there are so many cameras on the, on the uh, I guess the new version of the interstate and they can recognize license plates and if it calculates that on average between two cameras he exceeded the speed limit, it automatically spits out a ticket. And he still votes with labor. Now to, to um, build, that seems an absurdity to me as an American. Are we going to reach a point that sort of Mark referred to, and I I forget your name, sir, uh, that you did, where the the citizenry says this is absurd the way uh, a peasant might have on a flatulence tax during the Middle Ages. Is it likely that we're going to ever see people wake up because of the absurd lengths that the bureaucrats go to enforce their will
9: upon us.
2: Uh, Well, I I don't know. Is anyone want to answer that?
9: (laughs) Actually, I would, I've been encouraged by the concern that a lot of people are showing about spending and deficits and regulation through uh, all these demonstrations and uh, appearances at town hall meetings and the like. This is something that we really haven't seen before in modern America, where you get this kind of resistance. In the past, many of these things have been approved without much uh, intense opposition. So there certainly is a significant group of Americans who are concerned about this, and they're, they're expressing it. And uh, I'm surprised and encouraged by it. Uh,
11: uh, I just briefly mention. it's curious, we're very much thinking of Britain, Britain and uh, America, and obviously Germany has been just mentioned. The world's largest democracy actually had an episode of autocracy, the the emergency brought in by Mrs. Gandhi, and that emergency was not institutionalized. It came to an end, and in India, as indeed in a number of other countries, uh, Japan most recently, you've had very long established governments political parties which have been in government, which in a sense have controlled most of the agencies of the state, which have been replaced by democracy. I don't mean it's always a pleasant process, and sometimes it's very unpleasant by our standards of democracy, but it is not the case that once you get in a governing party which passes authoritarian legislation, it is necessarily always powerful.
0: I, I would. I, I think. I think that's true. But I do think there is a danger that the that it, it, you can change the character of a people uh, if you if you uh, have them living under this kind of regime uh, for one, two, three generations. Um, it is. It is interesting to me. Uh, for example, we're talking about airline security. The great inspirational story on September 11th. Uh, was nothing actually to do with the agencies of the state. The FAA, the CIA, the FBI, all the fancy pants, money, no object acronyms failed on September the 11th. What worked was individual citizens on Flight 93... Are rising up and taking action for themselves, that ought to be an inspirational yeah. story eight years on we 've all forgotten their names let 's roll it 's all over it 's dead and buried. nobody cares. The pathetic memorial they 're building in that field of Pennsylvania, uh, which is some kind of stupid crescent of embrace npr pbs let 's hold hands and cry kind of concept, is actually an insult to their memory uh, For every one of those flight ninety three stories there are worrying there are worrying equivalents where a passive population stands by as terrible things are done uh, and simply waits for the police to shut. There's a famous massacre in Montreal uh, uh, commemorated every year in which a man walked into a classroom, into the École Polytechnique in Montreal with a gun. He ordered all the men to leave. The men did. They went into the corridor, uh, and that guy then killed all the women in the room. And then when he'd finished killing all the women in the room, he walked out of that door and walked past all the men who'd stood there and heard their female classmates being murdered by this guy, and they still let him walk past and did nothing to stop him. That's not the spirit of Flight 93. There was an interesting episode in England a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago. Family, uh, a house catches fire. A, a, a man, a pregnant woman, and their two young children uh, uh, they call uh, 999, the British version of 911. Uh, the fire brigade don't get there first. The police get there first. And what the police do is prevent this family's neighbors from going in and helping to rescue uh, the, uh, the uh, family. So by the time the fire brigade show up, uh, the, the man, the woman, the pregnant woman, and the two kids are dead. And uh, the reason for doing this is that the police restrain the neighbors from going in to uh, help the family on so-called health and safety grounds, which is now the excuse for everything in it's why the Boy Scouts can't have pen knives on health and safety grounds. Uh, and this prioritization of so-called health and safety over all else in society, I think eventually creates that passive herd of animals that Tocqueville talked about uh, and it becomes very difficult then for them suddenly to say, no, you passive herd of animals, you've got to go into Flight <coughs> 93 mode. Uh, be, at a certain point, uh, the damage done to the character of a people is what's a, it becomes uh, what's at issue here. You no longer have fully functioning citizens. Yes.
7: Britain has got 25% of the world's uh, surveillance cameras. 25%. Uh, and it's now one for every 14 people one camera for every 14 people in the country. Um, But I must say that there's a kind of Scarlet Pimpernel movement against it, Um, and people go out at night and sabotage these places and blow them up and destroy them as best they can. And I think, in the end, this will be part of the general insurrection that we must look forward to.
2: I've I've even heard, David, that some uh, English women come to the United States and purchase a certain kind of spray, then spray it on their license plates, thus making them invisible to the cameras. I'm not going to name any names, but I've heard that this happens. Is any, uh, Michael?
12: Hi, I'm Michael Fedak. Uh, Mark, that was a, a very nice uh, paper. Um, and uh, I guess I would add to that fear about the generations, uh, the, the statement by Reagan, I guess that we all know that uh, um, uh, freedom is only one generation away from extinction at any given time. Um, but I, I do also want to note uh, uh, the, the the clarion uh, uh, bell of uh, caution that David raises about censorship. And we should acknowledge that Mark Stein is with us today and not in some Canadian jail uh, because of this uh, these types of threats that are, uh, are arising. I think this whole wonderful conference would be if Media Matters is here taping, uh, secretly or and George Soros is get, going to get a transcript would be uh, branded as hate speech. Um, there's a very disturbing issue uh, in New York, uh, New York Magazine, not the New Yorker, but New York Magazine. The current issue, the headline on the front cover is hate. And underneath it, or actually above it, is a collage of, of, of words that have now be, become associated with hate uh, and our, our president. Um, uh, liar is included in this collage uh, Obama a t-shirt that I proudly wore last November um, I- the the uh, sc- sort of creeping uh, uh, censorship that's uh, that's that, that the the left is is using to to delegitimize us and everything that's being said at, at this conference is uh, is a scary thing and I guess I just wanted to um, to bring that uh, to attention.
3: You know, I would like, to, I, I personally would love the idea of going to jail because of uh, being accused of hate speech. And, and I, the, the nice thing about the United States is uh, that we still have a lot of really independent minded, get off my back folks, some of them Jim alluded to who, the, this response to to a lot of the uh, Obama initiatives, but but the, the dichotomy between red and blue states is isn't really between states. It's, it's urban areas and rural areas. You go to Tennessee, uh, Oklahoma, Texas, uh, you know, go to the, those people are as American as apple pie still in the classic way. And there are all sorts of people that if you had hate speech uh, laws that you like you talk about in Canada, there are a lot of us who say bring it on. We will, we will force this down your throat and we'll make a public spectacle of it. Uh, so I don't know how it's going to play out. I agree with Mark character of a people erodes over time. Absolutely. And we are really at a pivotal moment. Some of us have used the phrase tipping point. This is the hour. Lots of things are going to play out in the next few years.
2: That's why we're having this conference. Yes. Uh, Any more? uh, uh, Yes, Marilyn.
13: Hi, Marilyn Fiedak. You know, first of all, I want to say, Mark, I have the same reaction. Every time I hear you or read one of your pieces, I laugh a lot. I'm very entertained. And then I'm deeply depressed,
7: (laughs) so I guess
13: it's good. I feel braced. Um, I, I am very taken by what's happening in Europe and the character of people making a conscious choice to give up their personal freedoms. I do have hope that in the United States that we can, can at this very dangerous moment, rally the citizenship behind us. And I think we are seeing it, you know, in the public meetings. I think we're seeing it in the popularity of talk radio in the fact that even the New York Times has to publish the name of three or four conservative authors every week in their top ten. And the question I'm going to ask relates to the populace that uh, Charles spoke about, that Jim spoke about, the people like us who have drunk the, the liberal Kool-Aid and voted for Obama and supported him. And I believe, and I think you do too, Jim, that it's because it's part of their, their personal mythology, their religion. But I do see at this moment in time a, uh, an opening for us, a wedge. I see it on Wall Street, where I work, where all of a sudden the people who supported Obama are waking up and calling me saying, oh my god, I think he's a socialist. I see it in healthcare. care. My husband is, you know, where, where doctors are all of a sudden beginning to understand the constraints that will be put on them as a result of we have a national health care. I see it because, like Charles, I do travel a lot around the United States. I do talk to those upper-middle-class businessmen who are beginning to understand what will happen to them. I was introduced recently as Texas, as the only Republican in New York. I got a standing ovation. um, And then I modestly reported, no, there are about 150 of us and I know all of them. But my point is, I think this is a moment in time where we can get these people who do have this as their personal religion to come over to our side on these wedge issues. My question for you guys is, how do we do this? These people don't know from the new criteria. They don't know commentary matters. How do we get to them and how do we organize them around these issues at this moment in time to stem the tide in the United States?
2: Well, that's a large question, Marilyn, and I hope we'll come back to that in the afternoon